Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global Beyond Jerusalem, with a message entitled, Pentecost in Samaria. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, verses 14 to 25, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. be very hard to overstress the importance of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. You know, if you're a Christian, it was the Holy Spirit who first made you aware of your sin and the need of a Savior. It was the Holy Spirit who prompted you to listen to the message of salvation, that Christ on his cross was your only hope. It was the Holy Spirit who is the author of your new birth. Jesus thought that to be born again is to be born of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who now gives you the desire to repent of any sins that continue to cause you to stumble. It is the Holy Spirit who gives you what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and so on. It is the Holy Spirit that gives you various gifts and makes you effective for service. It is the Holy Spirit that makes you desire the Word of God so that you're driven to study it and obey it. It's the Holy Spirit who calls you to prayer. And according to Romans 8, 16, he calls you to cry out, Abba, Father. It's the Holy Spirit who is your down payment and the guarantee of the glory that awaits you in heaven. It's the Holy Spirit that makes you aware of the Father's presence and often prompts you to recognize his desires. It's the Holy Spirit that makes you aware of the glory of the Father and the Son. It's the Holy Spirit who leads and guides us into the holy life. And it's the Holy Spirit who empowers all of us to do the work of evangelism, to make Christ known wherever we go. It's often the case that when we slip into lethargy and our zeal for Christ begins to wane, and we also easily slip into careless sins, but the Holy Spirit is the one who repeatedly fills believers with his presence. Were it not for the Holy Spirit, how quickly we would fall from Christ. As one dear friend once told me, I could fall from Christ so very easily, but the Holy Spirit simply won't let me. I could go on and on. The Holy Spirit is indispensable to the Christian life. It is not possible to live as a Christian as it was not possible to come to Christ in the first place were it not for the Holy Spirit. It is for this reason, the essential role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we need so carefully to examine Acts 8, 14 to 25. This passage for now well over 100 years has been the source of a great controversy among some believers. So rather than simply giving us time to warm up to this important text, let's just dive right in. I'll start by reading Acts 8, 14 to 17. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, They sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. I have up till now only mentioned a brief history of the Samaritan people. Let's review what we know. The Samaritans were a group of people who lived in what we now think of as, you know, basically the center of Israel. They were a distinct people group. They were half Jew and half Gentile. Their history goes back to the Assyrian conquest of northern Israel in 721 BC. Most of northern Israel was then deported and taken from their land, but a few people remained. These people intermarried with the Assyrians, and the result, well, that was the Samaritans. 
The Samaritans, as I've mentioned in the past, had their own temple, which was located not in Jerusalem, but on Mount Gerizim. And just by the way, there are still a few Samaritans to this day. And yes, they do practice animal sacrifice in their worship on Mount Gerizim. But let me not get sidetracked. The Samaritans, half-Jews, were considered unclean by the Jews. They disputed with the Jews regarding the right place to worship. They had their own Torah. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible as inspired. That is, they only believed in those books written by Moses. At the time of Jesus, Samaritans and Jews had no dealings with each other. But we have also seen in our study of Acts how the Lord opened a door for Philip to take the gospel to Samaria. When we ended our study yesterday, we said the Samaritans believed Philip as he preached to them the good news about Jesus. And that's what makes today's text so surprising. It was after they believed Philip, and then after Philip had baptized them into the name of Jesus, that two of the apostles, Peter and John, made their way from Jerusalem to Samaria. They then laid their hands on them, and only after the apostles had come and done that did the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit. So what gives? There are three answers, at least three, that can be given to explain this. The first is it was simply a unique situation. Because of the Jewish and Samaritan hostility towards each other, there needed to be a dramatic sign given from God to show that in Christ there is now neither Jew nor Samaritan, but they are now brothers and sisters in Christ. Only by delaying the baptism of the Spirit and then making the baptism of the Spirit in Samaria as dramatic as the Pentecost experience was in Jerusalem, would then the Jewish Christians ever come to accept the truth that these believers in Samaria were now fully equal to them. Now, that matter can't be overstressed. The ancient hostility that had existed between these two people groups was pronounced. Any Jew would have viewed a Samaritan with hostility. But what were some other reasons for hostility? Well, if you go back to Ezra 4 and Nehemiah 4, you're going to find that when the Jews returned from captivity in Babylon— and they came back to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple. It was the Samaritans who already lived there who opposed the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. They did everything in their power to stop them. That was never forgotten. The hatred of Samaritans was generational. It was shared in the culture. And so a separate Samaritan Pentecost that looked like the Pentecost in Israel was necessary to create an understanding that God had accepted both groups. Now, just before I critique that view, let's not move on too quickly. You know, one of the things that harms evangelism and world missions is a lack of genuine love for other people groups. Whenever there has been a long history of injustice and of historical wrongs and grievances, it's very difficult for the gospel to penetrate. And we might argue that one of the things that has hindered missions in our day has been the long history of colonialism. When European nations were the authors of domination— it's then difficult for a country to accept Caucasian missionaries. The sad history of colonialism is simply attached to the gospel then. And so I would argue that's all true. A separate Samaritan Pentecost did much to convince Jewish Christians that God had accepted the Samaritans even as he had accepted the Jews. But interestingly enough, our text in Acts doesn't actually say that. Luke never intervenes and says, that's the explanation for why the Samaritans believed and were baptized and had not yet received the Holy Spirit. Well, a second explanation of this phenomenon is the one that's presented by classic Pentecostalism. 
And it's the view that the experience of salvation and the experience of receiving the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, that those are two different and separate experiences. So classic Pentecostalism has argued that the followers of Jesus had been converted and then awaited Pentecost in Jerusalem. And then the followers of Jesus in Samaria were also converted. And they also, like their Jewish brethren, had received Pentecostal experience as a subsequent experience. See, the problem with that view is at least twofold. On the immediate level, the book of Acts doesn't teach that. Luke never says that's why it occurred. And furthermore, when we get to Acts 10, a passage we'll study, we'll see that the Gentile Pentecost has no delay. That is, in Caesarea, when the Gentiles hear, the Holy Spirit falls on all who believe at the very moment that they believe. So it seems clear that you can't make the case from Acts that there are two separate and distinct events. That is, conversion and then the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, which is the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, that day marks the beginning of a new era, so it's unique. It's the era of the Holy Spirit testifying to the truth of Jesus. The Holy Spirit coming in this way had never happened before, so it was important that it be a dramatic event. So one can't make the case that from that day on, that conversion and then the baptism of the Holy Spirit are two separate events. We simply can't read that anywhere in the Scripture. But there's another issue, one that simply prevents us from accepting the view that salvation and baptism of the Holy Spirit are two separate events, and that some only experience salvation and not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. See, the Bible itself categorically denies such a view. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, in the NIV, which has done a masterful job, it says of this verse, for we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Oh, how many of God's people are baptized in the Holy Spirit? The Bible's answer is unequivocal. All, every one of us. There's no such thing as a Christian who is not baptized in the spirit. Well then, what explains the Samaritan Pentecost? Well, hang on, it's very important. There's so much to learn from this. Easter is a pivotal time in the life of a Christian. The foundation of our faith relies on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Back to the Bible Canada has a two-part video series, an Easter series, available on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel, as well as backtothebible.ca. Special musical guests Brian Dirksen and Stephanie Radikop will provide inspirational music, and you'll be refreshed and strengthened in your walk with Jesus under the Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld. You'll be reminded that Easter offers hope, forgiveness, love, and the promise of eternal life with our Savior. So remember, join us for an Easter series right here on backtothebiblecanada.ca or join us on the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. For more information, visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. The key to understanding the Samaritan Pentecost, at least from my perspective, is found in John 2, 23-25 passage takes us back to the early ministry of Jesus. He's then in Jerusalem. 
The passage says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. See, there is in our day a grievous misunderstanding about belief. Modern evangelicals, when they hear someone say, I believe in Jesus, I believe he died on the cross for my sins. See, when we hear that, we immediately assume that that person is now saved. And modern evangelicals tend not to have any tools to ascertain whether that faith is saving faith or whether it's some kind of a defective faith. Saving faith begins with repentance or renouncing of all that is offensive and displeasing to God. It's turning from sin and from self and then turning completely in joy to Christ. In the case of Jesus in Jerusalem for his first Passover, that is, the first Passover in his public ministry, well, there were those who believed, that is, they believed in a certain fashion. But Jesus saw that faith for what it was. He would not entrust himself to these people because Even though they believed, they remained fickle. And when things got bad, Jesus knew that they'd turn against him. So what do we learn? We learn there are many kinds of faith that in the end are not genuine. Well, now, let's get back to what happened in Samaria. We noticed yesterday that when Philip preached Jesus in Samaria, the crowds all came together and were transfixed by what he was doing, that is, his miracles, and what he was saying about Jesus. Well, you could have heard a pin drop in that place. Everyone was transfixed. We also noticed that the people in Samaria believed and that they were baptized. But we also noticed that a man named Simon also believed and he was baptized. And that little statement is found in Acts 8.13 is reason to pause. Simon believed, as did the rest. Now, just to be clear, I have no doubt the people of Samaria genuinely believed. They heard what Philip had to say and they placed their trust in Christ. But we also know that this had been a community in which Simon the sorcerer had been active. That's why there were so many demons in that city. Simon was a man inspired by Satan to do miracles. See, I would argue that Samaritans had become syncretists. They believed the first books of the Bible, or what we now call the Pentateuch. But did they pay attention to all their Bible said? Well, listen to Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 3. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. The passage should have told the Samaritans exactly what they should have done with Simon the sorcerer, the man who claimed to be a god in his own right. They should have applied the test of their own Bible, but they didn't. Instead, they had allowed their city to be overwhelmed with demons. They had become syncretists. They claimed obedience to scripture, but they had also followed Simon, the man of sorcery. Something was yet needed from them after they believed in Jesus. They needed yet to renounce their dependence on sorcery. They needed to turn fully from that which had enslaved them. So we see that when Peter and John came to Samaria from Jerusalem, and let's read now Acts 8, 17 to 19. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now just to be clear, this giving of the Holy Spirit was not a minor event. I noticed that the giving of the Holy Spirit must have been visible. 
That's what caused Simon to react in the way he did. He had done his own dark miracles, but he had never witnessed anything like what he is now seeing. Leads to the question, what was he seeing? Well, the answer must be that he was seeing the same things that were being seen in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit was first poured out there. And so I would conclude that whatever happened in Samaria, it must have included things like speaking in tongues, prophesying, perhaps even, although Luke doesn't say so, perhaps even tongues of fire coming and resting on the heads of believers as was seen in Jerusalem. Again, I'm reminded of the first explanation that God was doing something unique in bringing Jew and Samaritan together indicating that there was now in Christ one new man, whereas before there had been two. I hope you're seeing that there was indeed a powerful work of unity going on in this Samaritan Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was ensuring that there would be no Jewish prejudices in the newly formed church. And yet, I still argue that there must have been something defective about the initial faith of the Samaritans. And I argue for that because As I read the text, the Samaritans believed, but so also did Simon the sorcerer. And then just a short time later, when Peter and John arrive and the Holy Spirit comes, what does the newly baptized believer by the name of Simon do? He witnesses the power that the Holy Spirit brings, and he sees that this power came about as the two apostles are laying hands on these believers, and Simon immediately comes to a conclusion. Peter and John have power that he has never had. Simon has done plenty of dark miracles, but nothing like this. See, Simon is still a sorcerer. Sorcerers always look for new incantations and new spells and new dark secrets for more miracles. Simon wants that. He doesn't know what secret source Peter and John are using, so he offers money for it. Well, keep reading, Acts 8, 20 to 23. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Let's start with the last sentence, shall we? You know, here's a man who testified that he believed in Christ and was then baptized upon the confession of his faith, and now it becomes apparent that two things are present in his life. First, he's in the gall of bitterness, and how so? Well, go back to Deuteronomy 29, 18 and 19. That was also in the Samaritan Bible. It says, Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turned away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. You see, the bitterness that Peter speaks about here is not like when we say, you know, someone's bitter, that is, they're envious and resentful. Rather, the bitterness is the bitter fruit that comes from idolatry. And second, Peter says that Simon the sorcerer is in the bond of iniquity. That is, he's chained to his sin. Sin won't let him go. He may believe in Jesus, but like Jesus' parable of the four soils, there's a love of darkness that is in this man, Simon, and that love of darkness has never released him. And knowing that's true is what leads Peter to make the initial statement, may your money perish with you. May you and your money die together. And furthermore, Peter says, you have no part in what we've been talking about. 
And so on the basis of that, Simon has but one instruction. He must fully and utterly and completely repent of his evil. The work of salvation has not been done in his heart. Simon is unlike the others who are receiving the Spirit. The others have been led by the Spirit to turn from sin and sorcery to Christ. Simon merely believes in Jesus and will not renounce his darkness. Acts 8, 24 to 25. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. You know, Simon did not repent, but he also didn't want to perish. And that's the sad ending of this story. Indeed, the lesson that we are to take from this, that believing while not repenting of sin is a lesson that every person who's hearing my voice right now, you need to consider this lesson. Do not assume that you can walk with Christ and yet at the very same time continue to walk in darkness. Do not assume that all you need to do is to believe if by believing you leave no room for repentance of your sins. Indeed, you must do what Jesus says. You must believe in Christ and for Christ's sake that you would gladly forsake all things and cling only to Christ and to him alone. You must find in Jesus your source of joy. He must become your bread of life. If he is not, you are not saved. You know, once you come to that conclusion, know this. This conclusion did not come about because, you know, you had worked your way there. This conclusion came about because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, in which you were born by the Spirit into the kingdom of God. If today you haven't done that, confess your sins, come to Christ. Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you, the Russell Moore quote, our churches are filled with unconverted people. How is that an indictment on the church today? Well, I suppose in one sense we could say that uh, there is no uh, time in history where there have not been uh, people who have not been genuinely saved in a local church. Uh, The sad thing is that some people are also not even aware that they have never come to Christ. They just, you know, have been living off of the spiritual realities of others and never have had their own story. Uh, That being yet said, it is an indictment on the church when we have not made the gospel plain or when we've simply assumed that somebody sitting there is always saved. I mean, we've got to continually review the gospel for people, and we need to tell them what they must do to respond to the gospel and do it over and over again. Never assume, always pray. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Beyond Jerusalem, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. Do you want to hear answers to some of the most requested questions Back to the Bible Canada receives from our listeners? Well, this May, Back to the Bible Canada will be airing a special video series called Ask Dr. John, responding to the questions on your heart and mind, questions about salvation, the church, finding strength in difficult days, and so much more. And you can take the opportunity to participate by sending your questions to info at backtothebible.ca or just giving us a call at 1-800-663-2425. 
You can access this upcoming series on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel or online at backtothebible.ca. For more information or to support the ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.